from 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Terror in Israel. The Palestinian group Hamas launched a surprise and horrific attack in Israeli neighborhoods, killing over a thousand people. President Biden offered full-throated support for the Jewish nation. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. But with the Israeli military response already killing scores of Palestinians on the Gaza Strip, there are concerns about the humanitarian cost and the potential for a wider conflict across the Middle East. This week on Newsmakers, The View from Capitol Hill with the chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Rhode Island U.S. Senator Jack Reed. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White, alongside 12 News Politics Editor Ted Nisi. Senator Jack Reed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. So first, I want to note that uh, this conversation is being recorded on Friday afternoon. Undoubtedly, there will be a lot of developments between now and when most of you are watching this program on a Sunday morning. But I want to kind of take a step back at the entire situation. Yes. The, the, the security situation in the Middle East has been an issue for your entire time in Congress. And I wonder how you would compare this attack with previous crises. Well, this attack was a purely terrorist attack uh, by an insidious group of people. They have no regard for human life. They are fanatics. Uh, they, some, many aspire to martyrdom. They hate the Israeli people and they do not care about the Palestinian people. They are in many respects homicidal, but unfortunately they're clever too. Uh, previous attacks against Israel were by nation states. The Yom Kippur War was Egypt and Syria, mm -hmm. conventional warfare. Uh, we were able to support them, not with troops, but with materiel. This is a counter-terror operation, and now it's moved into urban areas, which makes it a very complex and very difficult operation. Uh, but the Israeli uh, government is committed to uh, not only taking, uh, degrading Hamas, but, but destroying Hamas. But I guess the question is at uh, what cost, right? It, Israel is calling on residents of northern Gaza to evacuate, uh, to evacuate there. They, they announced this this morning, yes. Friday morning. The UN says that it is an estimated 1.1 right. million people um, and warned that the forced relocation would have, quote, devastating humanitarian consequences. Do you have concerns that uh, Israel is going completely scorched earth with minimal regard for civilians? I think that they understand, they're very sophisticated, that uh, if they are, appear to be, and which Hamas would like them to appear to be, going after civilians, destroying non-military objectives, that all go out on social media right. by Hamas. It's part of Hamas's plan. Absolutely, the Israelis understand that. Mm -hmm. They they they're going to go in. Unfortunately, given the nature of urban warfare and the fact that Hamas will deliberately put their key facilities very near civilians, very near critical infrastructure, they, there will be civilian houses. The Israelis have to be very conscious of that, for not just in terms of the humanitarian issues, which are critical, but also in terms of the exploitation by Hamas of what they do. 
the three of us have had umpteen conversations over the many years we've all been doing. We've been doing this longer than Tim and I've been doing this. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember all the times we would talk about Afghanistan and Iraq. The problem would be it's 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 urban areas. It's as you just said, guerrilla warfare. You get bogged down in those mm-hmm. situations when you're a conventional army, when you're a nation state. I just have trouble being a non-expert imagining how Israel can go into Gaza, a very dense urban area, mm-hmm. and and root out Hamas without flattening the place. Um, I guess as as a military expert, how do you think about what they need to do to be successful and not be there for 30 years and make the situation worse? Well, what they have to do, and it's extremely difficult, it is uh, urban warfare, house to house. Uh, but And they have to be very careful, as we just discussed, of civilian collateral damage uh, and identify. And they have tools to identify it, intelligence tools, electronic tools, tracking cell phones, etc., and find these key leaders and take them out first and then go after and try to roll up the, uh, uh, the remaining Hamas. It's not equivalent, but we accomplished... Uh, the same thing with ISIS. Basically, it was a powerful group that was controlling a large portion of Iraq. We went after them, and we were able to degrade them significantly. They're not even—they're not a real factor at the moment now. But but the difference was it was not an urban fight. It was a desert fight. That they were uh, more sort of a regular band of military rather than uh, five. I also feel like, and you correct me if I'm wrong, ISIS wasn't as embedded as I assume Hamas is at this point in yeah. the in the society and in the in the infrastructure. Well, uh, they weren't that embedded. No, you're you're right about that. But uh, they were, uh, you know, they had support systems and they were developing over the years. But Hamas has been running the Gaza sector for for years now, and they've been very much entrenched, very deliberately. Uh, and fr- frankly, you know, we have to find ways, not just the, the United States, but the international community to assist those innocent Palestinians who are apolitical, don't know, et cetera. We've, we've got to open up the Egyptian border, start pulling them out as fast as we can, screening them, but pulling them out. And then we also have to, on an international basis, this can't be one country stepping up. It has to be an international effort to provide necessary relief for the innocent uh, Just one question, and I'll give it back to Tim on that. Uh, Egypt, my understanding is, has never really wanted to open its, you know, there's two borders with Gaza. Egypt has a border, too. Yes, and, right. and just as Israel blockades right. on one side, Egypt does on the other. Right. Do you think Egypt might change its tune this time? I think they will, because I think what they're going to receive is a lot of uh, quiet pressure from not only the United States, but from other countries. Mm-hmm. And from other countries, uh, particularly the Saudis and others, financial support. What I would envision is, and this is not a very good solution, but it's better than uh, what we're looking at now, is establishing camps Mm. for these refugees and then trying to stabilize the situation as quick as possible and move them back into Gaza. That would have to happen fast. It would have to happen fast. uh, And I I can tell you right now, Secretary Blinken's trip uh, to the Middle East, to Israel, uh, is he's not just talking to the Israelis. He's talking to the Egyptians, he's talking to the Saudis, he's talking to, to everyone in the region about 
not just the conflict, but also how do we deal with this humanitarian crisis. And as we've all three said, this ultimately will be, uh, could rebound against Israel mm -hmm. in terms of popular support around the world. And we can't let Israel, you know, be in a situation where they become disenfranchised from the world community and an outlier, because that, that's Hamas's goal. Mm -hmm. You're chairman of the uh, U.S. Armed Services Committee, and I, so I want to talk about U.S. military response and aid. Right. Uh, the U.S. is providing Israeli troops with equipment. Should there be any conditions placed on how those are used? Uh, we have conditions on how uh, equipment is used. Like what? Well, they can't be used to target, uh, directly target hospitals or, or anything like that. Uh, they can't be used uh, to uh, attack civilian targets, basically I'm saying, repeating myself, but that's one of the major conditions. Uh, they can't be used to conduct, you know, in certain cases, chemical warfare or something like that, which is outlawed by treaties, which we are part of. Those are built into the uh, authorities that, and when we transfer equipment. A lot of people at home might have a very basic question, which is, can you see a point at which the U.S. would get involved actively either in the air or with boots on the ground? Uh, the key issue right now is containing the fighting. Uh, if Hezbollah in Lebanon actively becomes engaged, or if there are elements in Syria that actually can engage, that would put a lot of stress on Israel. Our initial uh, uh, support would not be ground troops because the Israelis have adequate forces and they've got some of the best special operators in the world. So when they go in with their, their troop boots on the ground, it'll be Israeli boots. But what we would do is uh, protect their airspace, not, I think, take any deliberate offensive operations. That and there's would, a carrier group there now. There's a carrier group there consisting of a, a carrier, a cruiser, and two destroyers. We've increased our F-16s, our F-15s, and our A-10s in CENTCOM. Uh, but that is really to signal to others, don't get involved. You know, we, uh, and the first step we would take would be to provide protection to the state of Israel from uh, air attacks and other attacks. But uh, we would be, it would be, I think, uh, detrimental both to the Israeli efforts and to our efforts if we got involved on the ground. Um, do you, uh, President Biden has been, I don't, I don't know if we've ever seen him as forceful as I feel like he's been in his public comments this mm -hmm. week about standing behind Israel, left zero wiggle room in all of that. Right. You have heard some folks worry about, is he suggesting Netanyahu has a blank check from the United States, their most important ally, when they're going into, as we keep saying, a very, very difficult operation, a lot of civilians, mm -hmm. a lot of room for blowback. Do you think President Biden has struck the right tone, sort of kind of ally management here? No, I think he did, because I think you had, th this was an act of depravity and terror. Rushing into to homes, killing children, slaughtering people at a concert. This was not a military operation. This was not a state-on-state -state conflict. These were depraved terrorists, et cetera. And if you just simply sit back and said, well, you know, uh, you, they've got a problem, good luck. It, that's not sufficient, because if, if these types of op operations succeed in Israel, they'll be emulated elsewhere. 
and we have to, I think, to support the Israeli government. We have a dialogue with them that is constant, uh, and it, in that dialogue, it's a mutual understanding that there has to be limits uh, in terms, and there, there is a humanitarian aspect. And if we go back to it, it's not just an appeal to their best instincts, it's to the self-interest. Uh, a lot of what you might think you want to do will be used against you and will create a terrible backlash, potentially. So working with them on a daily, constant basis, one of the problems, of course, is that we don't have an ambassador in Israel, we don't have an ambassador in Lebanon, because my Republican colleagues are holding the ambassador of Lebanon, we don't have an ambassador in several other Middle Eastern countries because of these ridiculous holds. We have uh, over hundreds of general officers being held by Senator Tuberville, which is not allowing us to do what we should do. The deputy commander of CENTCOM is now still in command of a, uh, the, of a fleet. Uh, he should be with General Carrilla directing his operations, and General Carrilla's deputy should be the NORTHCOM commander. So we're doing ourselves harm. Well, and we're, I think we're going to ask more yeah. about the holes yeah. uh, on the other side yeah. of the break. Just before we go to the break, the biggest criticism I've heard of the president this week from Republicans has been on that $6 billion <laughs> to Iran. Yeah. My understanding it's for humanitarian purposes. It hasn't been paid out yet. But the broader point, potentially, that the president should have been tougher on Iran, that even that kind of agreement shows mm -hmm. he hasn't been, you know, he's, he's been playing footsie too much with them. What do you, what do you say to that critique from the GOP? Uh, the president was able... Uh, to negotiate the release of five Americans who were being held illegally in Iran. One of the responsibilities of a president is to ensure the safety and security of Americans across the globe. And if they fall into hands, of uh, inappropriate hands, is to get them out. Uh, the Israelis are an example of this. Uh, years ago, they released somewhere between 500 and 1,000 prisoners for one Israeli soldier because that's the commitment they make to their people. You know, we'll get you out. And the six million is in Qatar. It has not been touched. It cannot be released until we give a thumbs up. I doubt seriously we're going to give a thumbs up for the, uh, in the near future at all. Uh, we want to understand what Iran was doing, what they're doing now, and send them a signal. The money is strictly for humanitarian means. It doesn't go to, it can't go to their uh, war fighters. Basically, what the Iranians have to do is give a receipt for medicines, and then the Qatar Bank will give it with our permission. So, so we have to go to break, but to that point, uh, Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator uh, Tom Cotton proposed legislation that would freeze the $6 billion. Yes. Would, you would vote against that? Well, no. I, I, I would make the case right now is that that's a nice uh, political message, but the practicality is the money's not going to go. And, and by the way, uh, before we consider that legislation, let's consider aid to Israel, aid to the Ukraine, and also promoting our offices. All right. Why don't we get to that on the other side Surely. of this break, and we'll have an important update on the war in Ukraine. Our guest this week is U.S. Senator Jack Reed. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is U.S. Senator Jack Reed. Before I, I pivot to Ukraine, you had mentioned the Israeli intelligence and uh, just how robust it is, um, but yet it, it looked like it failed, right? And, and have you been briefed or do you have a sense as to what went wrong with the Israeli intelligence machine? 
Uh, the, the Israelis are doing a comprehensive review. Our intelligence services haven't commented directly on that. But uh, I was in Israel in February and uh, following it pretty closely. I think one of the significant factors was the domestic unrest. When you have 100,000 people demonstrating every Saturday. Just to remind folks on this was over Netanyahu's proposed judicial changes, which exactly. have been very, very controversial. Exactly. And then when you have uh, efforts by his government to not discourage settlers in the West Bank from taking territory which is disputed, etc. I think there was a conscious movement of forces away from Gaza uh, to just prevent violence in the West Bank. That we're trying to verify. But also just the, the attention span of a government and individuals is only so much. And if you're facing these internal crises every day, you're not paying as close attention as you should to to Hamas. And then I think Hamas also, over the years, unfortunately, has learned to be much more clandestine in their operations. But the real th thing, I think, was just the whole uh, sense that the issue before Israel was the reform of the judiciary, and the whole country was in turmoil. Reserve Air Force pilots said they would not right. yeah. report for duty. So when you're a Hamas operator, hmm, they don't have pilots now, et cetera. So that was very, very critical. And now they are reporting for duty. As they're not only reporting for duty. Uh, I mean, there were stories of a, that wonderful story of the Isra retired Israeli general who cut his, his sidearm, jumped in a car, drove, fought off the terrorists, organized Israeli troops. It's yeah. astonishing. There it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's Everyone's in the fight. You, uh, one last Israel question, because I know we both have other things we want to ask you about. Um, the other thing as you watch all this is, for I think all of us, you say, can this problem be solved? You know, not the narrow Hamas yes, problem right now, but a lasting peace. Everyone says, oh, we should have a two-state solution or a multinational. It just feels like the, the fact that you hear people in the political side of Hamas saying they, they still do not accept that Israel should even exist. I know. I don't yeah. I, I guess, yeah, how does this get resolved? Well, you know, we have been close at moments. I can remember when uh, Ehud Barak and Arafat and President Clinton were at a point of, you know, and then Arafat bailed out, unfortunately, for the Palestinian people. But, you know, this is something, we just can't fight this fight and win, quote, we have to win the peace, too, mm -hmm. which means going back to how do we provide a stable, secure space for the Palestinians that does not threaten the state of Israel, uh, and how do we continue to build on uh, relationships with other Arab countries and, and Israel. And if we, if we just win the battle, we'll eventually lose the peace, which is the most important thing. So the terror attack in, in Israel has overshadowed the war in Ukraine for the past week. As chairs right. of the Armed Services Committee, you stay abreast of it, of course. What is the situation there right now? Is, is Russia starting to get the upper hand? Is Ukraine regaining territory? Is there a stalemate? Uh, they are um, moving slowly. Uh, they being who? The Ukrainians. Okay. For There's some fierce fighting now between the Russians and the Ukrainians along the line. But the Ukrainians are making progress. But the progress is measured in thousands of meters. It's not measured in 60 miles we've broken through. 
the winter is coming. Uh, mm -hmm. So large-scale maneuvers, with, particularly with armored vehicles, are very, di very difficult. So I anticipate that the Ukrainians will continue to push, push, push uh, the, the Russians. Uh, there is, in common military terminology, a three-to-one advantage to the defender, i.e., it would take three offensive troops to take out one defense. And they're using that. They're in bunkers. They have poorly trained troops, but a poorly trained troop with a machine gun in a bunker is, is dangerous. But the Ukrainians will continue to fight. They're going to fight all winter. Uh, they're not going to give up. Then I think the key area, the key uh, timing will be next spring, where at that point uh, they, they should be prepared uh, to launch a combined arms operation. Armor breaking through together with uh, every other asset, artillery, missiles, et cetera. But are they going to need U.S. support and Absolutely. equipment to do that? Absolutely. But it looks like that is where we're going. fading, That's uh, right. at least among House it, Republicans who control the House. Yeah, it is. And that would be a tragedy, not only for the Ukrainians, but for us. Uh, if they lose, we lose. First of all, uh, China, for one, is looking very closely at a country reclaiming according to Putin, their territory, they're looking at Taiwan. If we cannot hold together uh, the international coalition uh, for Ukraine, and if we don't contribute along with them, we probably won't, they'll say, well, they won't be able to hold together the coalition of Japan, North Korea, et cetera. This has huge consequences. And more precisely is that Putin's aspirations are not just Ukraine. He wants the Baltic, he wants Moldova, and the Baltic are NATO countries. Mm -hmm. And if they're invaded, then we're in fighting war. So this issue comes down to, in my view, something very simple. Do you want United States men and women out there fighting the fight? Or do you want to supply very brave, courageous fighters? I would prefer the last option. Let's help the Ukrainians fight the war for us. So we, we sometimes see through a glass darkly, all of us out in the hinterlands, but you're down there. I mean, do you think there's a lot of shadow boxing going on, but in the end, you think this coalition to provide support for Ukraine will hold in the Congress, or are you sincerely worried at this point? I think it will hold in the Senate. Cause well, we, yes. Yes, but no. I'm saying you, you, but I think what, was, what is happening, I hope, is that this whole circus, and there's other terms, but that's pretty accurate, <laughs> will end with the election of someone who understands that we have to maintain our support for Ukraine. There are people who are very outspoken, and I think they're taking their cues from Trump. Mm -hmm. And that has nothing to do with strategy. That has everything to do with, you know, how do I win an election? How do I stay out of jail, et cetera? Uh, you know, he, he was very dismissive of NATO, which sh when President Biden was able to pull together NATO in weeks. And by the way, the contributions of countries, ours has been significant, but if you look at GDP, percentage of GDP, we're around eighth or ninth, I'm estimating. The, the top countries are the, the Baltics. They're you know, giving huge amounts of money, military personnel, equipment, et cetera. And uh, so we, you know, this is one of the few times that it's not a good old USA you know, putting out the fire. We have really strong allies. 
We have two minutes uh, left in the program, Senator, and you brought up uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville in the first half. And just to remind our viewers, he continues his blockade of military promotions mm -hmm. over Depart Department of Defense policy that pays for travel for uh, personnel in states right. that do not provide abor abortion in the post-Dobbs world. Look, his spokesperson claims you called military leadership, quote, ineffective on the Senate floor weeks ago because of the hold and went on to say, quote, the hold is not affecting our readiness. Your response? Well, that's uh, ridiculous. Uh, as I mentioned before, the designated uh, deputy commander for CENTCOM cannot take that job. So we have someone in there, an Air Force lieutenant general, who's going to be the next commander of, should be the commander of NORTHCOM, which controls the United States. They really can't be moved on an acting basis or anything like that? You cannot presume that. You can, you can go, some can, some can move in an acting basis, but typically what happens is that, you know, uh, the, the commander leaves and the deputy commander becomes acting. That's what was happening for the chief of staff of the Army. He was both the vice chief of staff of the Army and the acting chief of staff of the Army. There are certain things the acting chief cannot do. They're delegated to the chief. There are certain specific functions that are given to the vice chiefs that are very important, which you can't do when you're doing two jobs. And frankly, these jobs are 24-7, just one of the jobs. And that is affecting our readiness. Let me tell you, does Senator Tuberville's uh, aide know more than seven secretaries of defense, including Republican secretaries of defense, who wrote months ago, this is harming the readiness of the United States? And by the way, it's also harming the families. There are, there are kids are not left. going to school. Kids are not, you know, they're not being able to move. And someone devoted, their families devoted their life, 30 years of their life, and now they're stuck in limbo. That's not only not fear, that is just mean. All right, U.S. Senator Jack Reed, we appreciate your time. Thank you. If you missed any of it, it's on WPRI.com. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on Newsmakers.